Well, good evening. We've got a uh, little bit of a special coming up for you here. Um, we're actually recording this episode this evening. I uh, had some stuff to attend to today. All good. And uh, I still have a job to do. Um, and that is to deliver you all content in a unique way uh, on a unique platform. Of course, we promote ourselves through Stitcher, Apple, uh, and the usual uh, channels. But uh, we've thrown Parlor in there as well. So you might want to consider a follow on a true free speech website. Regardless, uh, we're going to cover two of our um, really important stories, uh, and it's going to be a little bit of a shorter episode, so I'm going to supplant it with our financial message from uh, yesterday, uh, which is important and will, I think, uh, if you missed it, help illuminate uh, really a lot of the unfortunate Tensions and uh, not not tensions, but peer pressure when it comes to investing and where your money is. Of course, I believe that where your money is is more important than what it could earn you. Um, and I think this financial lesson is important. So stay tuned for that. But we're actually going to start with Trump and potentially a reversal on the China deal that was signed in January. This could be big, and we'll analyze it on the Kevin Prendeville Show. Stay with us. Now, you didn't think I'd forget to fire an opening salvo, did you? See, in this war of ideas, uh, we got to fight it like it's Napoleonic times. So we'll, uh, we'll let go of our uh, artillery first, and we'll hopefully uh, be able to impart some information, not only set the tone for the episode, but also provide a little food for thought. Geopolitics is a funny thing. There are so many conflicting worldviews of an individual that can impact how generations of people live, how they view their country, and how they see the world around them. Why not compare two extremes? It seems to be the most logical way of doing things. Let's compare... Gandhi and Stalin. Not a name I not two names I'm sure you would think to hear in the same sentence. But Gandhi has a reputation for his peaceful nature and the way that he was able to help gain Indian independence in a way that did so without some of the bloodshed of the American Revolution against the United Kingdom, and in a way that kept India in the fold of the West, that also prevented India from falling to the communists, which had happened in China, um, or was going on in China at the same time Gandhi was protesting. Would it shock you if I said that Gandhi and Stalin shared the same basic premise of life? It may. One killed 26 million people, the other one liberated billions. How could they possibly have the same outlook on life? Well, to be a communist, you have to believe that humans are basically good. 
why create a system based entirely on human morality, human principle, and human ingenuity if you believe that inherently humans are evil? This is why you'll never see a Christian communist. And for those who proclaim to be socialists and Christians, they are deluded. They either are Christians and it prevents them from actually being a socialist communist, or they're actually a socialist communist and not a Christian. Because the fundamental idea of the West, even pre-Christianity, is the belief that humanity is guilty of a great sin. And over time, we've begun to understand that as not because we have committed an act ourselves, but because we have the capacity to be bad. And philosophies that define the left are opposed to that notion and believe that humanity is good and anything that a human does with negative consequences must be done because of some greater injustice. Somebody steals because they are hungry. Somebody kills because they're angry. Somebody kills because they are a victim of a great injustice. Maybe some do. But you have to acknowledge that some people kill, maim, rob, steal, because they're frankly savages. To do the things and commit the acts that Stalin did. Again, genocide of 26 million people. Created a dictatorship which held Russia back from reaching the same heights that their Western counterparts did. He had to believe fundamentally that he was doing the right thing and that he was striving for some greater goal, and indeed he was. I don't think anybody would doubt, based on Stalin's writings and his philosophies, that he was not, that he himself did not believe that he was a communist in the flesh, uh, in the image that Marx had written. And the reason I bring this up is because both he and Gandhi, who staged a peaceful protest to liberate India, changed the respective outlooks of their regions and the world through their actions, but had the same starting point with belief. When somebody holds or wields great power, it 
It's inherently tyrannical. But it's necessary within the social contract, and it's also necessary in order to run a functional society. We understand that. We talk about the social contract ad nauseum on this show. But do they maximize the general public's liberty, or do they limit it? And that's the battle we see today. How much power do we give in order to balance the uh, liberty and safety? And in their efforts to build a utopia, China has chosen to give absolute power to a very small group of individuals. And the U.S., at least on paper, still has a separation of powers. My point is, how Trump deals with China is never going to be accepted on the left because... He understands that, and this is a great paradox, even though fundamentally in order to be an ideologue uh, Marxist, someone who, who believes in Marxism to the point to which it defines their actions and motive, that you have to believe that humanity is fundamentally good. And yet, it's the center of all sorts of horrendous acts. The Chinese are currently committing genocide, and no one seems to care. And the only thing that people like that who have absolute power, who believe that because they are inherently good and therefore have moral superiority over others... that in order to get what they want, they can treat others how they want. The only thing they respect from another country is power. And Trump meets China, not with supplication and great overtures, but with force. Not physical force, economic force, social force. And it's worked very well, but he may be the only one in American politics that is willing to do that. And that is really what we are risking here, should we not re-elect Trump. We are risking a resurgent China. And that brings us to our first article of the day. So if you'll stick with us, we'll examine how Trump may be attempting to pull the deal that was signed on January 15th and what may lay ahead. Stay with us. This is the Kevin Prendeville Show. Uh, so today uh, at a White House uh, press briefing, Trump was uh, visibly not happy with how China has handled their um, dealings with him. Uh, he says, uh, the trade deal means less to me now than it did when I made it. Uh, they are setting records. Yesterday was a record corn day, and they purchased more corn than any order ever, and they went on for uh, two or three days. And soybeans and all, but it just means much less to me. Um, now, I have no reason to doubt that the Chinese are not actually buying 
um, those sorts of numbers. Uh, with most things, you can't uh, trust the Chinese, but of course, if they put an order in, then they've put an order in. That's a little different. Um, but we see with uh, Mike Pompeo talking about uh, closing the consulate in Houston um, because of suspicions of spying and, and intellectual property theft. Uh, you know, that's that's a reasonable position to take. And the U.S., at least under Trump, seems to be positioning itself to be much more antagonistic towards China. And I believe that that's the direction we're going to have to go. And like I said in the opening, the only thing that these dictators understand, savages in suits, the only thing that they understand is power. And you have to demonstrate that you are more powerful than they are. Now, this is not diplomacy that you should that should be sought with every country, you know, with a Canada or Mexico or a, a United Kingdom or France where they are generally friendly to you and you see the world similarly and you have similar interests. It's necessary to approach and kind of with open arms. And with China that seeks to dominate you must prove to them that you can, in fact, defeat them and, and dominate them. And Trump may be attempting to do that because, uh, as he argues, that uh, you know we made a great trade deal, and this is a quote from him, we made a great trade deal, but as soon as the deal was done, the ink wasn't even dry and they hit us with the plague. That's true. You know, this started uh, in China, this plague, and they hid it from the world. They worked with the World Health Organization in order to do that. And they have wreaked havoc on the global economy and the United States economy. So I understand Trump's position. That being said, this trade deal was at least favorable to the United States. And we did fight... Uh, economically for it. So it is concerning, uh, and it brings to mind what Ray Dalio had argued, that by the 2030s we could even be seeing uh, more intense hostile actions between the two nations, maybe even escalating into a war. I don't know. I, again, I maintain that it's not going to get that far, again, especially if Trump loses. Now, maybe you know Ted Cruz wins in 2024, and we continue this anti-China push, and I think that's necessary, but I'm just not so sure it'll erupt into an actual war. And if we maintain this posture, I think I think we can actually win this thing, that we will be able to reverse course with China. But the question is, what does it mean for you, and what does it mean for us? Um, well, aside from your country winning, and that should be good enough for all of us, I think, uh, if we all truly believe in the Constitution. It means that when it comes to microeconomics, that to be able to trust companies, for and for companies to be able to trust that one day they might be able to buy into a free Chinese market, profits will just explode. You've got a lot of people that are willing to work, that are willing to be free, 
over a billion of them, to let them freely have access to American technology and business interests would mean for us that our I mean, stock prices would go through the roof of many major companies. I think you would see a huge boom when it comes to the NASDAQ uh, with a lot of companies that operate over there. Again, maybe you don't have the same cheap labor by the 2050s in this scenario where we're imagining China uh, capitulates. But you could foresee a future in which the extraordinary profits of today are just amplified because you have a truly free people buying into a system uh, in which allows them to innovate and create and truly join the, the rest of the world. And I want to leave that as a message of hope for this segment, that there can be a solution to what is seemingly uh, a bleak situation, especially in the East. All right, I apologize. Our uh, opening salvo went on a bit longer than I thought. Uh, that being said, we're going to cut to, for the next segment, our uh, financial lesson for yet from yesterday. Uh, in case you missed it, I think it was a very important one, um, which may not have gotten the attention uh, that it deserves. So we're going to cut to it now. And again, I thank you for inviting me into wherever you may be listening, whether it is uh, via car or um in your home, wherever you have uh, invited me in to be able to speak with you. Uh, I hope that I've been able to impart some knowledge and we'll catch you tomorrow uh, with another financial lesson. For now, take the uh, next segment and uh, hopefully we'll learn a little bit when it comes to social pressure and stocks. Well, I understand it's a uh, Wednesday and usually we do the Kevin Prendeville show, uh, but Today I'm actually doing double duty, had some other stuff uh, that I had to attend to yesterday, just didn't get around to our financial lesson, uh, so figured I might as well upload both today, uh, after all, uh, oh yeah. Anyways, um, this one actually came about uh, via a Facebook post. One of my uh, good friends and really somebody who I look up to in the industry, um, who I've interviewed uh, a number of times he's in actually interviewed in smoke and mirrors uh and for my next book that uh, has been delayed but will be upcoming uh i interviewed jerry feta uh for and he's a member of forbes council he's up uh in alaska and the owner of wealth dynamics uh well one of his one of the guys that uh works uh with him and has built his own uh clientele in in, in his own right um is a guy uh, by the name of uh, Nino, who's also a great guy who I've met, uh, you know, uh, in person uh, a couple times. Uh, just really a great guy and overall great team. And I bring this up because uh, we have the same financial philosophies, and uh, especially when it comes to inflation. And, and so Nino posts this uh, great little anecdote, which basically shows over time how much gold or how much uh, gold you can buy with the U.S. dollar. Uh, one ounce, obviously. And uh, in 1933, for $20.67, you could buy an ounce of gold. 
And uh, today in 2020, you could buy that same ounce of gold for $1,770. This isn't to say that, oh, look how much gold is appreciated. It's to say, look how devalued our currency is. And what the next step is, is even worse because we are in a situation now where our currency is going to be further devalued as the years go on. I mean, think about it. We've got wars we haven't paid for in the Middle East. We've got uh, potentially an impending uh, standoff with the Chinese if they continue to be aggressive uh, throughout Hong Kong and uh, the rest of the Asian nations. If they continue to, to battle with the India, you know, we may be called in in that situation. And we should. I'm not saying we should abandon those because just because our currency is devalued, it just that alone guarantees that our currency will be devalued, let alone the stimulus package that we've already uh, sent out during the Obama years, the stimulus package we sent out during the coronavirus, the stimulus package that they're talking about now, and the fact that should we get a Democratic president, we're going to end up with a bunch of new government programs. Mind you, the other programs don't go away. Uh, and to pay for that, we'll have to, what, raise taxes and devalue the currency. It's the only levers, really, that are being pulled other than bond cuts, uh, bond rate cuts, that the Federal Reserve has. So this is a great post to show us that inflation is so destructive. But when you don't, sometimes we money just becomes a number. When you put the visual to it, it's just, it's un, unimaginable. It's unreal. And uh, one final note on the macro side before we get into the, the real personal finance part of this. Um, we've talked a little bit about uh, the Zimbabwe fiasco of the late 2000s. And apparently we learned nothing from that. Apparently the, the Fed wasn't paying attention or fell asleep at the wheel. I'm sorry, uh, Jerome Powell or, uh, you know, the, our, our politicians just refused to learn uh, because, again, the solution when the dictator at the time of Zimbabwe uh, was faced with economic turmoil, of course, if you remember 2008, 2009, Great Recession was a global recession. And in order to fix this, Zimbabwe said, oh, we'll just print money and we'll just keep printing money and we'll keep printing money. And they didn't have a gold standard, obviously, uh, similar to us at the time. They had a fiat currency. And it wasn't nearly as strong as the U.S. dollar to begin with. So they keep printing money and printing money, and as their currency gets more and more devalued, they just print larger and larger bills to the point where they had, I think, up to a, a million-dollar bill. That's how devalued their currency got. You couldn't, you would, you could burn it because it's paper, but that's about the only value it had. It'd be more valuable burnt than it would be to spend anything. Here's the problem. Not only did we not pay attention and we're falling into the same traps where we just decide, okay, print money, cut bond rates, uh, you know, raise taxes. Those are the three levers that we pull to fix the national debt situation and the government spending problem. All this does is hurt the people who, would, who invest without real assets to back it up. All this does is hurt people who don't have a leverageable base to get into those necessary ingredients to stable 
financial uh, uh, philosophy. Now, the financial, general financial industry and general financial philosophies of our time are not going to help us. Why? Because, well, we push products. And what are those products invested in? Uh, typically the market, the stock market, which, again, we've been sold these ideas, whether it's, it's Hollywood. And again, I'm not alleging a conspiracy, but we've got this perfect storm of Hollywood movies, uh, guru marketing, uh, uh, and, and financial marketing in, in general to where people have this idealized version of the stock market that you can take, uh, you know, 500 bucks and end up with 5 million. And I'm sure that happens for some people. But the fact of the matter is, uh, for most people, they end up really getting screwed in the market. Again, most of these financial products have a fee attached to them, and that 1% fee, as low as it is, compounded over time, the advisor makes much more money than you. You account for the average number of market crashes within the lifetime uh, time of the plan, which is four, and that can cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars over the life of the time of the plan. It doesn't account for taxation, and it doesn't protect against inflation. Yet, and, and, and to uh, Jerry and, and, and Nino's credit here, both of them have uh, a great response to this, but, you know, you get the other guy who shows up and who's been classically trained, and he says, oh, pfft. I can make more money than that in the stock market. If you just invest in Amazon, you'll make all this kinds of money. For one, Amazon at this point is pretty much a blue chip. You look at their price, and yes, I understand it's appreciating. Yes, I understand they'll have more of the market share once we're through this COVID thing. Yes, I understand that for the foreseeable future, Amazon is a very stable company, but their get-in price is very high, obviously. So the growth is going to be much slower, even though it's appreciating. At this point, it's pretty much a, a, a blue chip. But the general myth surrounding the stock market is that, again, you can go in with pennies and end up with millions. But the best investors in the stock market are the advisors, and they don't make money with their own money in the market. They make money with other people's money in the market, and they make a fee on it. It's how hedge fund managers make their billions. It's how your average uh, Edward Jones guy makes money. Again, and, and if you work for Edward Jones, good for you. But you make your bread on fees, right? Now, maybe, again, maybe you put yourself in your products. That, that's fine. If that is your financial philosophy... But I don't believe that we are doing our job when we don't educate the American people on all of the different things that are costing them money. Instead, we just focus on the percentage and say, shut up and give me your money and I'll make this percentage go up. Because we're in a situation now where we have to hedge against inflation. It's simply too great of a risk at this point. 
And you look at it, I would even argue that maybe we should look at even uh, cutting down on how much we're in bonds because the bond rate for the foreseeable future is going to be cut. They're even talking about going negative like they've done in Europe and Japan and, and pretty much everywhere else in the world. Which means the growth in, in the traditionally safe uh, part of the financial plan is going to be minimal at best and probably won't even outpace inflation and therefore precious metals should take a bigger role, maybe even overtake that role, maybe not completely. But to the point where our clients can feel comfortable that they're not getting screwed by the invisible tax. Because it's here. It's here to stay. And if you don't account for it, you're going to be mired and mediocrity. And this, ladies and gentlemen, has been your financial lesson for the day. I am Kevin Prendeville, and I appreciate your patience. I appreciate your um, willingness to learn. And thank you again for however, wherever you're listening to us, uh, whether it is uh, in your car or uh, at the gym or wherever you are, if they even allow you into the gym anymore. I appreciate your time today. And I hope that I could impart just a little bit of knowledge on you.